0: Good morning. Um, I will read from Hebrews chapter 9 verses 13 through 14 and uh, chapter verses 10, 14 through 22. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow sprinkled on those who are defiled consecrated them and provided ritual purity, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our consciences from dead works to worship the living God. By his will, we have been made holy through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are made holy. And the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will establish with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and I will inscribe them on their minds. Then he says, Their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no longer. Now, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, by the fresh and living way that he inaugurated for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in the assurance that faith brings, because we have had our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. This is God's word. You may be seated. Good morning. morning.
1: Let's go to our Heavenly Father in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we recognize that you are worthy of all glory and honor and praise for all that you have done, are doing, and will do. And Father, we pray that our hearts might be so tuned that we will join the heavenly praise that is being offered up to you and to your Son. Father, we pray that as we look at your word, that we will have soft hearts, that we will allow your word to shape us, that you might have your way, and your will in our lives, that we might live out the purposes that you give for your people, that we might be the instruments and tools that you desire us to be. We pray, Heavenly Father, that your will will be done and that you will be glorified. And we ask all of these things through your Son's name. Amen. over 700 have gathered here this morning plus others are joining us through video streaming and this is happening in spite of the fact that we come from every economic social strata. We come from every age group and generation We possess every hue of skin tone. Among us is represented every educational level. We have been born not only in Texas and not only in the United States, but some of us have been born from countries around this world. We are politically diverse. We are socially diverse. And yet in spite of all these things which sometimes divide people, we recognize that we share something in common that far outweighs all of these little details. And it is what we share in common that unites us. We serve the Lord. This year... Our yearly theme is focused on our new mission statement. Love God, love people, change the world. However, before anyone can love God or love others in the ways that God wants us to love others, and before we can become the tools that God can use to change the world, People must first be transformed by the story of what God has done and is doing in this world. And this morning's lesson involves replowing familiar ground. We're going to go back and, and look again at the greatest story of rescue, the greatest story of transformation that exists. It's the story of what God has done, is do, is doing, and will be doing in this world through Christ. And if we listen closely, we will also hear a challenge that the Lord has given to each of us. Some have said that before we can understand why the gospel is such good news, we first need to hear the unvarnished bad news. And bad it is. From the earliest chapters of the Bible and then proceeding throughout the subsequent books, we learn that humanity faces a dire crisis. Sin has entered the world. Pandora's box has been open. Sin has sprung out upon the stage, and humanity is unable to put it back into the box. Not only that, but the temptation, the, the allurements of sin, the lies from Satan entice, and people succumb. As Paul would explain it, sin has infected and dominated all of humanity because each of us has sinned. We have all succumbed to it, and thus all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And as we think about this sin, we're constantly being reminded of what has happened in our world because of it we're reminded of the destructive the broken the sinful ways that are running rampant throughout humanity less than seven days ago in the city of las vegas a man unleashed death and havoc against a crowd you turn on the evening news at night And almost every evening the headline stories describe violence and injustice as well as the resulting suffering that came from these things. But the wrecking ball of sin is not just remote and distant out there. It has also shattered godliness and peace much closer to home among family and friends. And people can find themselves broken. Incapable of fixing themselves and hopelessly insufficient to live up to the the purpose that God has created for them. Have you ever stared in the face the corrosive and divisive power of lies, an illicit desire, theft, selfish ambition? Have you looked it in the face and seen it? Have you suffered injustice because of sin's work in someone else's life? Then you are painfully aware how sin wrecks havoc, reducing lives to rubble, leaving wounds and scars Perhaps you've asked, why hasn't God done something about all the evil and all the suffering it causes? Why has he allowed it to go on? To recognize the pervasiveness of sin is not to deny that people can pull together and smooth out some problems and and do some good because people do. Rather, it is to acknowledge that sin is pervasive and destroying sinless perfection throughout this world. And true spirituality lies in rubble. When we lived in San San, San Jose, when we lived in San Jose, I remember speaking to a man who was in his 50s at that time And he said, you don't want me to be a part of your church. You don't know what I have done. The first thought that went through my mind is, it's not my church. But I told him that the blood of Christ is more powerful than anything he had ever done. And that God loved him and God wanted him to be a part of the community that God was building. I wish I could tell you that he wanted to know more. That he chose to learn more about God and God's desire for him to be a part of what God is doing. But I can't. He continued to insist That there was no way that God wanted him. That he had gone too far. Sin can do that. Not only is Satan the father of lies, his lies can convince people that their sin is too great for God's love and transforming power. And of course that is not true. It's just one more way that that sin can shatter lives and continue to hold them down. And as we think about sin and its, its pervasiveness, if we're honest, we know that our lives have not been exempt either. And it has impacted us. Everyone has been broken by sin and suffered its effects. Paul would graphically describe our spiritual state before coming to Christ. Titus chapter 3 and verse 3, we too were once foolish, disobedient, misled, enslaved to various passions and desires, spending our lives in evil and envy, hateful and hating one another. In another text, Paul becomes even more graphic and blunt Ephesians chapter 2 beginning in verse 1 you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind and the reason that all of this sin is such bad news, is not only does it ruin relationships and destroy lives here, but also, after this life is over, everyone must appear before God and give an accounting for all of the good and the evil that they have done during their lifetime. And the sad truth is that no one has lived up to the standard of godliness and holiness that would enable them to remain in fellowship with God as God judges how they've lived. Everyone stands condemned. And this is bad news. Thinking about who we are, and what we have done, and who we are coming before Christ, it can be painful and unsettling. But there's two short Bible stories that illustrate why it is important to remember who we are without Christ, to reflect upon our sinfulness before we come to Christ. The first story deals with Jesus, a Pharisee called Simon, and a sinful woman. Jesus had been invited to this dinner at this Pharisee's house, a man named Simon. And as Jesus goes to the, the dinner, and you'll remember how people ate back then. They did not sit at tables like we do, but rather the, the tables were very low, and you would recline on, on one elbow and, and eat with the other. And so Jesus has gone to this house of Simon, this Pharisee, and they're eating this meal And while they're eating it, a woman who has a reputation, everyone knows who she is. She has a very sinful reputation. She comes in and she stands behind as Jesus is laying there with his feet out behind him. She stands behind Jesus and she begins to sob. How many tears, how deep does the sobbing need to be to make a person's feet wet? But she's overcome. And she stands there and she's sobbing over his feet. And the tears are just falling down, soaking his feet. And then she takes her hair and she begins to dry them. And she gets them dry. (laughs) She knows some things about Jesus. She's heard some things about this one. She's been moved to come in and do this. She pulls out this expensive perfume and then after she's dried his feet, she pours this perfume on his feet. And Simon the Pharisee, he watches all of this. He's looking down on the woman. And he's also thinking negative thoughts about Jesus. If this guy was really a prophet, he would know what type of woman this is that's touching him. He, he would stop this if he was really a prophet. So Simon is thinking these negative thoughts about this woman and, and about the Christ. And then Jesus says, Simon, i I'd like to tell you a story. There was a banker, and he gave a loan to two fellas, One loan involved about a month and a half of salary. And the other loan involved about a year and a half of salary. And and the time came that both of these men were incapable of paying back their loans. Now, the banker, he forgave both of the men their loans. So, Simon, I got a question for you. Who is going to love the banker more? And Simon says, well, I I suppose the one who had the bigger debt. And Jesus said, you're right. And then Jesus said, he who is forgiven little loves little. Jesus said, he who is forgiven little loves little. I have a question for you. I know the answer in my own head for me. But my question to you is, how much has God forgiven you? Were you almost there to heaven and just needed a little forgiveness? Or do you have an awareness of sin and, need, and realize you need help from ground zero? I suspect that self-righteous people do not realize the weight of their sin. And if we falsely view ourselves as people who barely fall short of God's glory and his, His salvation, I suspect our love for God might be quite shallow. And then it would be hard to love God, love people, and change the world. But if we accurately perceive the profound weight of sin, any sin... And we see ourselves, then we are more likely to love God more for the grace that has been poured out to us so unworthy. And hence, we have good reason to reflect on our brokenness. Which brings me to the second story, brief story. It occurs in Isaiah chapter 6. It's a story about Isaiah going to the temple to worship. And now, every indication is that Isaiah would have gone to the temple many times previously. And as he went in, he would worship, and he would do whatever he was engaged in. And he would praise God. And he would leave, and he would probably feel very good. I've worshipped, I've praised God, and he's gone on his way. But on this particular time, he goes to the temple, Isaiah chapter 6, and something different happens. He writes and says, I saw the sovereign master seated on a high elevated throne. The hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraph stood over him. Each one had six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two wings they covered their feet. And they used the remaining two to fly. They called out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord who commands armies. His majestic splendor fills the earth. Isaiah has this apparently vision of something of the majesty of God. He hears these powerful seraphim praising God and proclaiming God's holiness. He sees something of the holiness of God. And when Isaiah perceives true holiness and what that looks like he suddenly becomes aware of who he is and the depth of his own sinfulness woe is me I am destroyed for my lips are contaminated by sin and I live among people whose lips are contaminated by sin my eyes have seen the king the lord who commands armies well when anyone comes into god's presence they suddenly realize who they are in contrast to god and isaiah realizes the profound depth of his sin and he he is horrified and he is undone and he knows he's destroyed in grace god sends a gift he sends a seraph from his presence who removes all of Isaiah's sin. And then God says, who will go? And as a result of his profound gratefulness and gratitude to God for what he has received, when Isaiah hears God say, who will go? He says, here am I. Send me. And he's going to be someone that God can use to change the world. Until we come into God's presence, we might be clueless about just how deep and profound spiritual sinful ruin is. But left to ourselves, as those who have succumbed to sin and who must eventually appear before God's judgment seat, we are in Paul's words, of Ephesians chapter 2 and 12, without hope and without God in this world. It's a bad picture. Toward the end of the first century, as persecution began to break out against Christianity, and injustice appeared to be unstoppable, some Christians began asking, how long is this going to continue? I mean, sin and and the effects of it. Why doesn't God do something about all of this injustice and the suffering that's going on and the suffering that evil is causing? And God provided in answer. Good news. In Revelation chapter 4, the risen Lord, the powerful one, with the sword that comes out of his mouth, he's, he has died, but he will never die again. He has authority. The risen Lord gave John a vision inviting him to enter into heaven and to discover what was going on behind the scenes. And John wrote, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And John will go on to describe this throne room of God with God enthroned. And all the description is that God's in control. Things are horrible down on earth, but God's in control. Everything is okay. And there's these beings around Him who are constantly worshiping Him, four living creatures and and these 24 elders and they're falling down and they're putting their crowns before Him and they're worshiping Him day and night. And then John writes, after he's described this throne room and the scene that God's in control, then I saw on the right hand of the one who was seated on the throne a scroll written on the front and the back and sealed with seven seals this scroll explains god's will god is sitting holding the scroll sealed with seven seals it's god's answer to all the injustice and all the evil the scroll is completely filled up front and back there's no room to add anything else to it nothing more can be said it's all there This scroll will reveal God's plan and it will certainly come to pass. And as John is seeing this, perceiving this this vision of, of a scene transpiring in the throne room, and I saw a powerful angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. So I began to weep bitterly because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look into it. Here it is, the scroll revealing how God's going to handle all this stuff. The scroll that's going to to say what God is going to do. But nobody can reveal it. It's right there. And John begins to bitterly cry. So close. And then one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Look, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered. Thus he can open the scroll and its seven seals. It's because of Jesus, the Lion of Judah, what he has achieved. That he is worthy of revealing God's plan for handling evil. In Revelation, this language of conquer, overcome, to be victorious is repeatedly associated with those who pay the ultimate price to serve God. And this Lamb has been victorious. He is conquered. And John then sees in the midst of the throne room a lamb that appeared to have been killed. It looks like this lamb has been slit and cut, but this lamb is very much alive. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of the one who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders threw themselves to the ground before the lamb And they begin singing a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were killed. And at the cost of your own blood, you have purchased for God persons from every tribe, language, people, and nation. You have appointed them as a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. How is God handling the problem of evil? The song that's praising the slain lamb reveals that God has already begun. Through Christ's death, sin has been overcome. Christ's blood is successfully purchasing people for God from every corner of the earth. And that's why we are such a diverse group here today because of the blood of the Lamb. But this song also reveals something else that's very important it reveals a transformative force in those purchased for God. They are given a new identity and a new purpose as priests who are part of God's kingdom. Salvation is not simply an eternal life insurance policy. I sometimes, when I think of this, I think of health insurance. People buy health insurance to protect against that bad day. But does it change how they live? Does the sugar increase slow down? Does medical insurance change anything about how people live? No. They've got insurance against a bad day if they need it. Sometimes I suspect people treat the salvation that God has provided like eternal life insurance. And it, doesn't, it might not change how they live. But the purpose of the blood's lamb is not only to make us God's people, not only to rescue us from our worst evil and and the, the problem and the condemnation that sin brings, but it transforms us. It makes us into God's people who have been given a purpose. Every single one of us, not just the staff, but all of the church is given a purpose in living for God. And to Christians who are feeling like the forces against Christ that are threatening and might extinguish it even, the song says they're not going to win. This kingdom and God's people are going to continue to reign. What good news. The enemy doesn't win. The kingdom and these priests, they will continue to be. They will continue to serve and reign with Christ. And so as the Lamb then goes ahead and breaks the seven seals to open the scroll that's containing God's plan for handling evil, the bottom line message is God will judge the evil that concerns His people. The blood has already made possible a new people, but God will judge the evil that exists. And in fact, one day, as the text that was read earlier The sea is no more. At the end of Revelation, the source of evil ceases to exist and Satan himself is thrown into a lake of fire, done away with. God has a plan for handling evil. It is righteous. It is decisive. And the living creatures and the elders who've been praising God in that throne room scene as John first comes into it, they're now praising Christ crucified who lives forevermore. And they say, worthy is the lamb who was killed to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and praise. And then John essentially sees all of heaven and all of earth break out in praise to both God and the lamb, because the lamb is worthy of praise. To the one who sits on to the throne and to the lamb be praise, honor, glory, and ruling power forever and ever. Amen. Amen there is a message that permeates the New Testament and if it has impacted our lives, it has forever changed us. It begins with bad news and the honest recognition that yes, we have all sinned and left to ourselves, we are hopelessly lost. But God in his love for us sent His Son to die for us, so that with His blood, we might be made holy. We might become God's forgiven people. And, and there's two huge practical things that come from this. As God's people, we are to praise God. First Peter chapter 2 verses 9 and 10, you'll remember how Peter describes us, the people of God, as being priests. Sounds a lot like Revelation. As being priests, given the purpose of proclaiming the glory, proclaiming the one who has taken us out of darkness and brought us into the wonderful light of his Son. That's one of our purposes. And if we understand the depth of our sin and where we have been and what God has done in freeing us from that, then our hearts will praise and proclaim God. But there's a second thing that happens as God takes people to be His. As God's people, we are to be His workmanship. Paul described this in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. Having described that in grace God has taken people to be His, he then says, We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. As his workmanship, we are to live in a particular way. We are to be. He transforms us. He gives us a new start, new life, spiritual life. We are forgiven. And now we are to live out the purpose that we have as being God's priests, as being God's people, as being his workmanship to change the world. If we truly understand the profound depth of our sin... And the gift of God's grace, we will deeply love God and we will live lives of loving others and we'll be God's tools to change the world. The scripture reading this morning was from Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 9, the author describes the effect and the benefit of the blood of bulls and goats being sprinkled on people. It made them ceremonially clean. And then he goes on to describe the effects of Christ crucified for us. He says, how much more will the blood, will His blood, Not just do the ceremonially cleanliness, but purify our conscience. Release us from all awareness of sin against me. It's gone. I'm no longer held down by that. And he goes on to proclaim what the death of Christ has done for us. It has made us holy forever. You don't need any more sacrifices. You've been made holy forever. And he talks about God's promise, the new covenant, the God's promise through this sacrifice, the, the blood of Christ. He has taken us to be His people and He has promised to forget, to remove all sin from our lives. And so then in chapter 10, as he's drawing into the great conclusion, starting in verse 19, he says, Therefore, let us come into, and I'm paraphrasing, into the presence of God boldly. Not because of who we are, but because of the blood. The blood of the Lamb. We can come into God's presence with boldness. And he describes that we can do that with a sincere heart. And why is that? We we can come with, with faith and confidence. Why because our hearts have been sprinkled with the blood of the Lamb. The blood of Christ has been applied to our hearts. and We've received all the benefit. And he goes on to describe the moment, the time, when the blood of Christ is applied to a person. He says our bodies have been washed with pure water. And he refers to that, that teaching that if we understand who Christ is and who we are that we can respond and rely on Jesus and rely on his death and all the promises God has made for us and we need to acknowledge him and we need to be buried with Christ in baptism into our own death that we can leave behind an old life and be raised up with Christ into a new life. And we rely on His death and His blood. It may be this morning that someone has not yet made that commitment to Christ. There may be prayers, requests that we would like to bring so that our church family can be in prayer. Whatever the need might be, let us know while we stand and sing.
0: Heard an old, old story how the Savior came